Amen. Some of those old hymns bring back a lot of memories. If you were like me and grew up with those in, uh, in your childhood years, and you can remember, I remember my grandmother sitting next to me, and she always sang alto. And uh, as we sang that last song, I could just kind of hear her uh, singing alto. She still sings it today, uh, sometimes on key, and we'll leave it at that. If you have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We are moving along now and have finished the story of Jesus' birth and what is commonly called the Christmas story. Uh, We finished that up last week. And so now uh, we're going to be looking at the childhood of Jesus uh, in Luke uh, chapter 2. It's been several years ago now. I had the privilege of meeting a Jewish rabbi here in Sarasota. The meeting happened, originated out of um, an assumption that one of his parishioners had about Mennonites' perspectives on Israel. Uh, There was an online article that had been published that was quite critical um, of Israel, and it was signed by a particular Mennonite organization, and, and that article... Uh, caught the ire of this member uh, in this uh, gentleman's synagogue. And so this guy did a search of every Mennonite church in the area, in the region of of Sarasota, and he emailed every one of those churches a rather inflammatory response to that article. Well, um, because I serve at Bethel Mennonite Church, uh, I was the recipient of one of those emails. It came, and so even though we were not associated uh, directly with that particular Mennonite organization that had published the article, I reached back out to this guy, and I said, hey, would you be willing to meet uh, and talk about your, your email in this article? And I was surprised. He said yes. And so we made arrangements to meet up at Panera Bread, and so when I went there that morning, uh, he arrived He brought another friend from his synagogue, and he brought his rabbi. Uh, I think they came prepared for a verbal fight. Uh, They they were there. They showed up. We ended up leaving that meeting as friends. Uh, I was able to reassure him that uh, we, too, hold a high view of of Jews as God's chosen people. But there was one thing that stood out to me from that meeting. We were drinking coffee and talking. The rabbi made this fascinating statement. It it stuck with me all these years. He looked at me and he said, I know that you believe that the Messiah has already come, and I know that as a Christian, you worship Jesus as that Messiah. However, he said, we believe that the true Messiah is still on his way. And so as a result, we pray daily for his arrival. And he told me, as a rabbi, as part of his daily prayers, he said, I asked for the Messiah to come about 300 times every day. 300 times every day, this rabbi prays for the Messiah to come. Now, 
I don't care what you think about the Jewish faith or even this rabbi in particular, but no one can doubt the fervency and the intensity with which this man seeks the Messiah. But the sad reality is they missed him. They missed him. The Messiah has already come. He's already been revealed to us in the scriptures. And one of our longings is that one day the blinders are lifted from Jewish eyes so they can see the truth of what we see in the scriptures. And so this morning, as we dive into Luke chapter 2, what we're going to see here is yet another evidence. The rabbi didn't really give me a chance to defend my belief. Uh, But here's another evidence that we could use to say the Messiah has already come. Here's another proof of that uh, from Luke chapter 2. More witnesses, uh, more confessions uh, to the Savior who's come to the world to accomplish that mission. And so my hope this morning is if you've walked in here and and maybe you're not convinced yet, or maybe you would like some more uh, proof, this is yet another one uh, that you can go to. So this morning and the next two times that we're in the book of Luke, what we're going to be taking a look at is the childhood of Jesus There's not a lot given to us in the Gospels about the childhood of Jesus. We only see a couple incidents when he's very, very young. That's what we're going to look at uh, this morning and next time. And then we see another incident when he is 12 years old. And yet all of these confirm in our minds this is Christ. So this morning we're going to meet a guy named Simeon. He says this is the Messiah. Next time we'll look at a prophetess named Anna. She says this is the Messiah. And then even 12 years old. Jesus makes statements that confirm his identity as I'm the son, I'm I'm doing the work of the father, his identity as the Messiah. So all of these, uh, we see proof again of who Jesus is and what he claims to be. So let me read our text for this morning. Uh, This is going to cover the life of Jesus from the age of eight days old to the age of 40 days old. Okay, so follow along. I'm going to start in verse 21. I'll read down through verse 35 this morning. And at the end of eight days, when he, Jesus, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called Holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. 
And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We'll stop there for this morning. One of the things that Ryan mentioned when he opened this morning, and which I want to bring to your attention again, is that Jesus was born under the Old Testament law. Now, we read about Jesus in the New Testament, but remember, he lived under the authority of the covenant law of the past. The reason for this is very straightforward. Jesus had to accomplish what no other human has ever accomplished. Jesus had to live under the law of God, and he had to keep it perfectly. The law of God, if you think about it like this, the law of God is the written code of the character of God. If you want to know what God is like, read his law. Because his law describes who he is. If you want to know what is just, read the law. And you will discover a just God. If you want to know what is righteous, read the law. If you want to know the difference between right and wrong, read the law. And you will know who God is. This is why King David loved the law. He said, I love meditating on the law. Because the more he read the law, understood the law, the more he understood his God. But beginning with Adam and Eve... Every single human had failed to live out this law perfectly. Everybody sinned. And so in order to be a substitute for sinful men, Jesus had to do what no one else could do. He had to live out the law with a perfect score. No sin. He didn't come to throw the law away. He came to fulfill it. He even said this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus had to accomplish the law. That began when he was a baby. That began when he was an infant right here in in chapter 2. Way, way back in Genesis 17, God had made a covenant with Abraham. And the covenant sign of that relationship would be that every male descendant was circumcised. So here you have verse 21, the very first fulfillment of the law, right here, Jesus coming on day 8 to fulfill that covenant requirement to be part of this Abrahamic covenant. So you can look at the law and you can say law number one, male boy circumcised, check. Jesus accomplished that right there in verse 21. In that same verse, mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, in obedience to the word of God through the angel, also name him Jesus. So they are also fulfilling what was placed on their life on behalf of this son. They name him Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation or our God saves. And this son is going to become the savior of the world. Now, go from day 8 and fast forward 
33 more days, and you pick up the story in verse 22. All right, so Jesus is about 40 days old right here. Uh, in verse 22, it says, When the time came for their purification, they bring him up to Jerusalem, because every male who opens the womb shall be called holy, and to offer a sacrifice according to the law. Now, let me give you a little background here, because what are they doing? What is this purification? What is this uh, opening the womb? What is is all this about? Well, if you go back and you study the book of Exodus, you will know that the children of Israel were in slave bondage to Egypt, right? And God was freeing his people from that slavery under Egyptian bondage. And to free his people, God sent... Ten plagues into Egypt to accomplish his purpose. The very last of those plagues was that every firstborn in Egypt would die. That included every firstborn male. That included every firstborn animal. Every firstborn would die. But God spared all of the firstborns of the people of Israel if they put the blood across their their doorposts. Right? You have the first Passover here. And so on that dreadful night when the wailing of Egypt could be heard because their firstborn were dying, all of the firstborn of Israel were being spared. Now, in order for God to help his people remember what he did for them in that redemption, God said, all right, so here's what I'm going to do. When I bring you out of Egypt... From here on out, I want you to set apart every firstborn for me. Every firstborn male, I want you to dedicate to my service. And every firstborn animal, I want you to sacrifice to me. So that when your kids grow up, one day they're going to come to you and they're going to say, Mom, Dad, Why do we do this? Why do we take every firstborn male to the temple? Why do we take every firstborn animal as a sacrifice? Then you will be able to tell them, because here is what the Lord your God did for us. He saved us from Egypt. So from that time forward, every firstborn, this is what happened. Now, as you can imagine... There's a lot of firstborn males that are being born. There's a lot of young men, boys, uh, coming, uh, being consecrated to the Lord. And so um, in Leviticus, God narrows that number. And he says, I'm going to take all of the boys from the tribe of Levi. So the Levites, that's where we get the name. All of the boys of the tribe of Levi, they are going to be set apart for me for service full time. And so if you were from the tribe of Levi your firstborn son automatically became a Levite and served at the temple of God. But if you were from another tribe, you could, you could dedicate your son to the temple service, or you could redeem your son for five shekels. So you show up at the temple, you pay the five shekels, and then you could take your son back home with you. Okay, so in one sense, you were redeeming him from the requirement of being in full-time temple service. Well, Joseph and Mary, if you remember, are from the tribe of who? They're from the tribe of Judah. 
right? So they're not from the tribe of Levi. So they're bringing Jesus to the temple under this requirement that they show up on the 40 days, but they're going to pay the redemption price and they're going to take Jesus back home with them. Okay? So that's one thing that's happening in this story here. The other thing that's happening, because this is Mary's first son, um, and, and this is... Um, this is a purification of Mary. She's coming to offer what's called a purification sacrifice. The law said this. If you're in contact with human blood, you are unclean and therefore unable to participate in temple worship until you are declared clean again. Okay. So when a woman gives birth, of course, there's, there's bleeding at the time of birth. Um, and then until that woman and her womb are completely healed, there will be some bleeding, spottiness or otherwise, for a period of four to six weeks or so. And so the law says, all right, uh, women of Israel, um, at 33 days after birth, uh, you can come, if, if, you're, if you're done bleeding, uh, you can come and you can present this purification sacrifice at the temple. Uh, you and your husband, if, if he helped take care of you, if he came in contact with the blood, then he needs to come as well. You come and you bring this purification sacrifice and that then reestablishes your right to enter back into temple or tabernacle worship. So those two things are happening simultaneously. Joseph and Mary are coming to the temple to bring their purification sacrifice. They're also coming to pay the redemption price, um, even though their, their firstborn son is set apart. He's called holy. They're going to take him back home with them. Okay? So that's what they're coming to do. The prescribed sacrifice for purification was twofold. One, you bring a lamb... Uh, that was uh, for the uh, burnt offering. And then you bring a pigeon or a turtle dove for the sin offering. But if you were poor and you couldn't afford a lamb, then you could bring two turtle doves or two pigeons, and that would be accepted. So notice that it is the latter, in verse 24, that Joseph and Mary are bringing. They're bringing a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which tells us what? It tells us they didn't have great means. It tells us that they, they were not wealthy. They were, they were poor. Which, just as a side note, I would encourage you, never ever despise poor people. If you are willing to despise poor people today, it is very likely that you would have been willing to despise Jesus too. Don't despise poor people. And... If you are wealthy, don't be deceived by riches. In many ways, wealth may be your greatest trial in life. Don't despise poor people. Here comes Mary and Joseph. They have two things in their mind. Purification of Mary so they can return to temple worship and then paying the redemption price for Jesus, their firstborn son. The law of God is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ again. 
So Jesus is about 40 days old here. Shepherds have long come and gone. It's very likely that Joseph and Mary have probably stayed in Bethlehem instead of going all the way back up to Nazareth and back down just a month later. They probably stayed in Bethlehem. Maybe by now they were able to get into the inn. I don't know if there was a room there eventually. We don't know. Uh, But they come to the temple. They have these things on their mind. And when they walk into the temple that day, they meet this most fascinating of characters. Look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem. His name was Simeon. He was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Many people believe that Simeon was a priest. The the Bible doesn't say that, so we don't know. He might have been, but we we simply don't know. People also assume that Simeon was an old man because later you see this joy he has of being able to die, but we're not even told his age. We can assume he was older because it says he's been waiting, uh, but we're not told from the text that he is old. What we do know about Simeon is that he is righteous. That means he has good behavior. He's well-behaved with other people, and he's devout. He has a a right relationship. He's very careful about his religious duties, a right relationship with God. And honestly, that's quite refreshing because if you know all the other many of the other folks that are in this Jerusalem setting, especially the religious elite, they were quite hypocritical at this point. And so when you encounter a man who's actually righteous and actually devout, uh, it's refreshing to have guys like this around. And God did still have faithful followers. And this guy actually had the Holy Spirit residing on him. Now, this is rather unusual uh, because uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't rest on people in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit would come and go, but this guy had the Holy Spirit on him all the time. And here he is, eagerly anticipating the consolation of Israel. That's a big word that means he's looking forward to the comfort that God has promised to his people. He was waiting for the comfort of the Messiah who was to come. And I don't know, we're not told, but I'm guessing if this guy was devout, as, as the text says he is, that he has studied the Old Testament prophets quite well. And I wonder if when he would come to the temple and he would pray, if some of these promises were on the mind of Simeon as he thought about the comfort of Israel. Things like Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, where, where God says through Isaiah, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I wonder if Simeon thought about Isaiah 52. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Or maybe he was thinking about Isaiah 61, verse 2. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And again in Isaiah 66, verse 13, as one whom his mother comforts 
So I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Israel, Jerusalem. I just wonder if Simeon came to the temple day after day after day, month after month, and just praying, God, today, would you send the comforter? Today, would you send the redeemer? Today, would you send the the Messiah, this this one that you promised? And again, the the Holy Spirit was upon him, and, and the Holy Spirit had promised to Simeon, you will not die before you see this Messiah, before you see Yahweh's anointed one. So, Simeon had this assurance that one day, when he would show up in the temple, he would get to lay eyes on the very Savior of God, the Lord's Christ, Yahweh's anointed one, the Redeemer and Savior of Israel. It was on this day, Mary and Joseph are coming with their purification sacrifices. They're coming with their five shekels to redeem their son. They're coming in. It's on this day when these two things come together. And I don't know exactly what this looked like. I don't know if Simeon's walking up the steps of the temple. I don't know if he's already there praying. But on this day, as he's heading into the temple, he spots Mary and Joseph. And deep down inside his heart, the Holy Spirit said, that's the one. That's the one right there. That's the Redeemer. That's the Savior. And I don't know what Simeon must have felt, but I suspect his heart probably skipped a beat. And the adrenaline inside of his body just pumps full. And he just, faster and faster, takes off toward this couple. Probably almost running across the the way. And he rushes up to Mary and Joseph. We don't even know if he said anything to them. He just scoops up this little baby in his arms. And he just starts blessing God loudly. He doesn't care what anybody around him thinks. He doesn't care what the priests think. He doesn't care what the other... People who are there praying think. He just starts talking out loud. Verse 29 says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. It's a fascinating blessing. Simeon uses an unusual word here when he speaks of Lord. Typically, when you see the English word Lord in your Bible, um, it's one of two words. It's usually either a Greek word, kyrios, which means ruler or owner, or if it's capitalized, it's usually a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. Typically, those are the two words that that are used. Simeon doesn't use either of those words here. When he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart, he's using a word, a Greek word, despotes, from which we get our English word despot. Now, usually in our English language, if you use the word despot, 
the word means someone with absolute power, but often it's in a negative way. It's absolute power that's used in a cruel or oppressive way. That's typically how it's used, but that's not how Simeon uses it here. He says, despotes, God with ultimate authority and power, you do whatever you want, whenever you want, and as a result of your absolute power, I am in the position of a slave. And that's actually the word he uses later in verse 29. Your translation says servant or bondservant. It's actually the word doulos, which means slave. He says, I am merely a slave of the one who has absolute power. And because your power, God, is absolute, it is thorough, it is complete, it is in your providence that you have aligned all of history so that my eyes, as your slave, have been allowed to see your salvation. And there in the arms of Simeon, he's looking down and he's saying, this is the salvation. I see it. Not only the salvation of Israel, but the salvation of the whole world. Simeon doesn't know how all of this is going to play out. He hasn't seen the cross yet. He hasn't seen resurrection yet. But he knows this. My God has absolute power. And if he says this is the salvation of Israel and the world, then this is the salvation of Israel and the world. It'll be a light for Gentiles. It'll be for the glory of Israel. Jesus was sent for everyone, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Out of all those places, Jesus will redeem people for himself. He didn't come to die just for the Jew. He came to die for the Gentile as well. And I hope that if you're here this morning, you're thankful for that. There might be somebody in this room this morning who's ethnic Jew, but most likely there's not. We're all Gentile. Most all of us, at least, are Gentile. Simeon knew that this Messiah was coming for you too. He was coming to be a light to you. And now Simeon says, I can die in peace because I've seen salvation. Now, listen to me on this. Simeon got to see his salvation physically. He got to hold the salvation of the world. He got to see him with his own eyes. You and I don't have the privilege of seeing Jesus physically, at least not yet. But in a metaphorical way, we have to see Jesus as well if we are going to die in peace. You have to see Jesus by faith if you too want to depart this world in peace. You have to believe in him, right? You have to trust him. And even though you can't see him yet, you have to believe him that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him. And if you have not seen Jesus in a saving way, listen to me, you don't want to die. If you have not seen Jesus in a saving way, 
You do not want to die this morning because if you die without having seen Jesus, you will not die in peace. You will die only to experience the horrors of eternal death and torment in hell. You do not want to die without having seen Jesus because to die in that state means that you will pay for your sin. That you will suffer the due penalty for your rebellion. It is only Christians who can die truly not afraid of death. Because when a true Christian dies, he or she knows that the penalty was already paid. And he merely closes his eyes on this side of eternity to open them on that side. And then actually see Jesus physically. Because Jesus died and rose again and endured that punishment that he or she deserved. A Christian's death in this life, all it does is free us from the the burdens of this life and lead us into the blessings of the next. You can have that if you repent of your sin and you follow after you. That's what it means that your eyes have seen by faith Jesus Christ. Well, Mary and Joseph are watching all this. They're, they're, they're listening to all of this as, as Simeon is, is blurting all this out. And they're just marveling. And then Simeon says something much more ominous. In verse 34, he addresses only Mary. And it's as though he knew that Joseph would not be alive when Scripture seems to indicate that Joseph was not alive when Jesus went to the cross. And so Simeon looks at Mary, and he says something to her. He says, This child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. As Jesus walks the earth, He is a sign that points to the Father. But he is a polarizing sign. He is going to attract all kinds of opposition and people are going to rise and fall based off of their understanding of who Jesus is. And that reality has not changed for 2,000 years. People still have to decide, who is Jesus? You can walk through this world and you can say all kinds of things like, I'm a person of faith. I'm a spiritual person. You can even say things like, I believe in a higher power. You can actually even get by with saying, I believe in God. You can say all of those things and you won't get in too much trouble in our world. But if you dare say, I believe in Jesus... Now you have a fight on your hands. Now you have a world that's going to come after you because they hated Jesus back then. They still hate him now. And you need to get ready that if you identify with Jesus, if you say, I am a Jesus follower, I trust in Jesus, get ready, the world's going to be on your doorstep. Don't be shocked by that. Just be ready for it. Because Jesus reveals the hearts of people. You cannot be neutral about Jesus. You either love him or you hate him. 
He's one or the other. You either have him or you don't. You can't stand on a middle ground. I tell my children this all the time, especially uh, those that are in, in, in public school. I will tell them things like this. Just be ready. Because as soon as you declare your allegiance to Jesus, you will instantly know who's with you and who's against you. You'll know. There will be no mistake. That shouldn't surprise you. That shouldn't scare you. But Jesus is a fork in the road. If you stand for him, you're going to have trouble in this world. But if you stick with him, you'll depart in peace. But if you are ashamed of Jesus and he's a stumbling block for you, you can skirt through this world pretty easily. But when you die, you will depart in abject horror. The choice is yours. You stand for Jesus now. Face the world with Jesus at your side. Meet him one day in heaven. Or do you hold your head down in shame only to hear him say, I'm ashamed of you and spend your eternity apart from him. The choice is yours. But you can't be neutral. That's what Simeon's saying here. He's going to cause people to rise and he's going to call people to fall. He's going to be a point of opposition. He's going to point to the Father. He's going to be a sign. But get ready, Mary. You are going to find out how painful this is. And to Mary, he says, there's going to be as though a sword piercing through your soul. And that word that he uses there for sword, it's not a little sword. It's the type of sword that Goliath carried. It's going to feel like a massive sword. Mary, Simeon says, you are not going to go untouched by the sufferings of Jesus. It's going to hurt like the dickens. And it's going to be the greatest pain that you've ever faced in your life. But hear me, Simeon tells Mary, it'll all be worth it. And I want to tell you this morning, if you stand for Jesus, it's going to hurt like the dickens in this world. People are going to come after you. People are going to mock you. People are going to call you a fool. People are going to call you homophobic and transphobic. They're going to call you an idiot. They're going to do all kinds of things to you in this world. I just want to encourage you, friends. It is worth it. Because one day, the troubles of this world will fade away. One day, you'll stand in front of Jesus, and he will wipe every tear from your eye, and you will live with him in peace forevermore. It's worth it. Keep the faith. Stand strong for Christ. We're going to sing a song. I asked Don, if you want to come on up here, Don, I asked Don to sing this song. What a day that will be when my Jesus I will see. Will you stand? I want to pray and then we're going to sing this together, all right? God, I have no idea what all we'll face in this world. Simeon told something to Mary and Joseph back then that's true today. Our Lord is the consolation of Israel. He is the redemption of both the Jew and the Gentile. He is the comforter. He is the peace. And if we believe in him, we can have that same peace. But he also introduces opposition. He 
exposes the hearts of people who will either choose to follow him or reject him. I pray that we would stand in Christ, that we would find our hope in the power of his blood, in his death and his resurrection, that we would stand strong, taking the attack of Satan in the world, knowing that he who is within us is far greater than he who is in the world. And while it may hurt, and while we may have much pain in this world, if we endure to the end, we will find that it's worth it. That the peace with you forever and ever is worth it. What a day that will be. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name.